0: While well, the year is 95 AD, almost all of the 12 disciples have died, mostly martyred. One remains, Jesus' closest friend, John, the beloved disciple. He's now 89 years old. There'll be a link to a talk about John at the end of this video. At the head of the Roman Empire is Titus Flavius Domitian. Domitian starts a fresh campaign of persecution against the Christians of the empire. He reigned for a short eight years, but in that time he was a violent and vicious persecutor. Numerous early writers talk about how he started his persecution by bringing slanderous accusations against the believers and spreading lies throughout the entire empire. So fake news is not a new thing. He was renowned as being as cruel as Nero, but more intelligent. That's a pretty dangerous combination. He was a brilliant administrator, had an eye for detail. He had a few strange behaviours. He liked to catch flies and stab them with a pen. He loved watching gladiatorial fights between women and dwarves. And he was the first emperor to call himself God the Lord. Now Christians and Jews largely refused to accept this blasphemy and so a great persecution began. And executions and exiling were the weapons of this persecution. Now John was also beloved by the believers in Ephesus where he had settled and indeed where he had now taken Jesus' mother Mary to live. And here it seems he remained into old age, and from here he was caught and exiled by Domitian. It was to an ancient island that he was sent, an island that had been inhabited for 3,000 years before John arrived. In the time of the Romans, it had declined as a residential island and had become a prison for captives who were forced to work quarries and mines in the harshest of conditions. Patmos is just here and actually really quite close to John's hometown of Ephesus itself. And it was whilst he was here that Jesus himself appeared to John in a vision. And he said, I'm going to show you things which I want you to write in a book. Then I want you to send this book around to the seven churches in Asia. And these seven churches were in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea and he said to John do not be afraid I am the first and the last I'm the one who lives who was dead but behold I'm alive for evermore. I have the keys of Hades and of death and he said write down the things which you have seen the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the mystery of the seven golden lampstands And then Jesus tells John what those mysteries are. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. And this first message concerns the church at John's hometown in Ephesus. And so this is the first of seven talks in this short series. Now, Ephesus was a major port. Today, the coastline is silted up, and Ephesus is several miles inland. But at the time, it was a significant seaport. It's located right here on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. Only the ruins now remain. The city had been established more than a thousand years before our story, and now, at the time of John, it had a population of quarter of a million people. Its most famous building was this one, the Temple of Artemis the Greek goddess of hunting, later renamed Diana by the Romans. It was built 650 years earlier and it became one of the seven wonders of the world. Figurines of the goddess were made and sold here and Paul had some major problems when his teaching reduced the amount of sales of this item. You know, Paul spent more time here than any other of his church plants. He spent around two and a half years here. And the church wept on the beach when he left. They loved Paul and Paul loved them. Its most prosperous times were under Roman rule at the time of our story, with its large man-made harbour, huge amounts of goods poured into Asia Minor. So let's read this very short passage. It says this. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works and your labour. I know your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, that you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered and you have patience, And you've laboured for my name's sake. You have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly. And remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. But this you have. You have hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well I think it's worth noting that although this letter was meant to be read aloud in the church or the churches it was actually written to the angel of the church in Ephesus quite an insight that angels watch and report back on a church and Paul even suggests in 1 Corinthians that angels are active in our gatherings. Now somewhat arrogantly churches in medieval England started to contemplate who their angel was and which angel was looking after their church. And so we have the names of St. Gabriel's church and St. Michael's church. Quite a bit of presumption right there. Now it's also worth noting that Jesus is building his church, but he is also able to and does close churches down if they do not bear fruit and if they are not righteous. He can and he does remove lampstands. It's sobering, isn't it? He starts churches and he can close churches. Even churches that to all appearances are prosperous and doing well, as with our church in Ephesus. Indeed, of the seven churches in our series, many were closed. Jesus had many good things to say to this particular church in Ephesus. He commends their hard work. He commends their labor and their patience. He commends that they have tested those who are apostles, who say they are, but are actually liars. He commends that they cannot abide those who are evil. He commends that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus said he also hated. Let's just talk about them for a brief moment. Now, four early church fathers write about a man called Nicholas, once a deacon of a church, a deacon who fell into a great heresy. Nicolaitans were teaching that the Christian faith and licentiousness went together. This is an age old problem. You can track it back to temple prostitution in ancient Israel. And God always, always hated it. It's still rife today that God is okay with sex outside marriage, that free sex is not a problem to God. You know, it's easy for a church to slip into legalism. It can kill a church stone dead, but it's just as easy to slip into this licentiousness, to believe that God turns a blind eye and gives us license to sin. After all, it's his job to forgive us, isn't it? I once heard somebody say, our road should not be legalism or licentiousness, but we should travel the road of liberty. The liberty or the freedom of the spirit, the Bible calls it. Liberty to say no to sin. God has made us free and we stand fast in that freedom or that liberty. Not entangling ourselves in bondage, but neither taking our freedom for granted The Bible says that we should not use that liberty inappropriately. To use this liberty to say that sin is okay. Jesus hates this licentiousness and so did the Ephesians and so should we. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Jesus says, despite all that commendation... This is not a church that would survive because they had a major problem. A problem that needed to be fixed fast if the church was to make it. The Bible uses the word quickly. The problem is that they had lost their first love. Everything had become function. They were efficient, effective. They were active and well run, busy, doing lots of things, doing good deeds but they had become sterile. They had become a professional church. How much more can we become like this? Bear in mind that this was during a time of trial and persecution. These were not nominal believers, Christians in name only. No, they were committed to Jesus and their faith, but somehow in all that busy commitment, they had lost it. How much more should we in our comfortable Western churches be aware of this particular issue? When you start to lose your first love for Jesus, then you start also to lose your love for each other and for your neighbours. And faith becomes empty, like a clanging cymbal, as Paul called it. You know it's there, but it's not really doing anything, even somewhat annoying. They had lost their first love. That means that first careless love, that first abandoned love, that besotted love, that I can't stop thinking about you, love. You know, I find myself convicted even as I say these things. It is something that we are all in danger of. And the more time that passes, the more potential for danger It's the same in a marriage. Many people don't nurture their love for each other. They don't look after it. It's not a deliberate neglect, but a subtle thing. Other important matters take priority. I suspect that the church in Ephesus had no idea how far they had fallen. Indeed, that they had fallen so far that their lampstand was to be removed very quickly, as we have said. Now, in order to combat this, you must first be aware of the problem. And we owe it to ourselves to be honest about how far we may have fallen in this area. As churches, we must be honest about this and take time and ponder it. Church leaders and pastors must be conscious about what God is saying in this area. If we're honest about this and conclude that we are in danger, then the answer is a simple one. Jesus in Revelation 2 tells the church in Ephesus precisely how to solve this problem. Three simple steps for both believers and churches. Number one, he says, remember. Remember what it was like at first when we were in love with each other. Remember when we first met what it felt like, when we were amazed at what we had discovered. Remember when we were besotted with our Saviour, when we used to read the word and get excited at what we discovered in its pages, when we used to share our faith with others. Remember those times. This is an essential part of marriage, Remember the time that you first met and how you felt when you and how you acted together, how you couldn't wait to be in each other's presence. The Bible says in Proverbs to those that are risk adultery, remember the wife of your youth. Remember. Christians, remember what it was like when we first fell in love with our Saviour. Then number two he says you are to repent. Now, many people misunderstand repentance. Repentance is not being sorry. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, we're told. It says that in 2 Corinthians. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, but it isn't repentance. You can't repent without being sorry, but you can be sorry without repentance. No, repentance is about a change, a change not an attitude. Sorry people don't make it to heaven, only repentant people. That's very clear in our Bibles. That means I was doing one thing and now I change direction and do something different. This also applies to marriage. I'm sorry to keep referring to marriage, but the lessons are striking. After all, our relationship with Yeshua or Jesus is a marriage, is it not? And this leads us to the last of the three things in Revelations. Arguably, these last two steps may be one and the same, but he says, having repented, now repeat. Go back and do again what you did in the beginning. Talk to me more. Read my word more. Give thanks more. Rejoice in your salvation more. Give up everything for the pearl of great price more. Talk about me to others more. By the way, they hadn't lost their first love. It says that they had left it. They left their first love. They knew where it was, but they weren't bothered enough to go back for it. Too busy to go back for it. Didn't miss it enough to go back for it. Remember, repent and repeat. How simple is that? Yet when you get stuck in a rut, it does not seem that simple. How easy it is to become lethargic. Listen to me, fellow believers. We have found a pearl of great price. We have a wonderful saviour whom we rejoice in. The fact that he went through so much for me, for you and me, filthy rotten sinners, should bring tears to our eyes. Remember these things. I get easily moved when I consider what he's done for me. I find myself forever grateful, and I never want to lose that. But I do need to change it into action. Open our Bibles again, cry out in praise again, enjoy his presence again, increasingly. Well, what did happen to the church at Ephesus? About 15 years later, an early church elder called Ignatius heard about this church from his dear friend Polycarp, the main elder, at Smyrna. And he wrote the church a letter in which he he mentions how much they love the Lord and their love for all the saints. But it didn't last, unfortunately, and within 200 years the church was closed. And Ephesus today is just a tiny village. Virtually no Christians can be found in this once lively and active and successful congregation that Paul had loved so deeply. The good news is that if we hold on to that first love... Jesus himself promises us something at the end of this passage. He says, whoever has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, and there's a lot of overcoming in these letters, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Paradise means the king's garden. Eating from the tree of life in God's own garden. What a reward. Lord, keep our hearts pure and simple. Help us to remember that first besotted lover and to return to it with all sincerity. God bless.